So we're talking about speeds that are sufficient for even escaping the Milky Way and shooting a star out of the galaxy towards Andromeda. Hello world, welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast about science, satellites, space technology, and exploration, hosted by yours truly, Cole. Blasting off into 60 seconds in space, NASA wants to grow a moon base from fungus, and researchers from Colorado are making a new kind of concrete that is alive and can heal and replicate itself, which is made possible from the cyanobacteria microbe. And so the question becomes, you know, what other bacteria and microbes are viable options? And last but not least, scientists believe a meteorite impact two billion years ago may have ended a snowball Earth ice age. And this is thanks to a team of researchers studying Earth's oldest meteorite crater, Yarrabuba, 40 miles wide in Western Australia. Just imagine, we might not be here if it weren't for this one meteorite. So our guest today is Professor Matt Kaplan, who got his bachelor's in physics from the University of Virginia and master's and PhD from Indiana University. His PhD thesis, titled Astromaterial Science, won several major awards in his field for his simulations of how stars freeze. Currently, as a professor at Illinois State University, Professor Kaplan is a computational nuclear astrophysicist, which is a fancy way of saying that he uses computers to simulate the insides of stars. And on occasion, he writes papers about potential technology of advanced civilizations. Hello, Matt. Welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast. I really appreciate your time today. Glad to be here. Just wondering what inspired you to start studying um, outer space and astromaterials? I guess like every kid uh, these days, I spent too much time on YouTube watching videos about you know stars and big bangs and black holes, and I kind of got sucked into it uh, metaphorically. So um, I went to college, I majored in physics, and I finished with that. I went to go do a PhD in physics, that was at Indiana University. And it happens that uh, the guy I did my PhD with studies how stars freeze. So I sort of apprenticed myself in doing simulations of these things that I call astromaterials, which are the, the materials or the solids that form inside neutron stars and white dwarfs as they die. And uh, I have since sort of made a career doing that. That's incredible. Uh, what, do you, what do you most enjoy about, about your work and research? Something that's really neat uh, that I think you can appreciate even not being an astrophysicist is just the sheer mixture of scales that comes with it. You get this enormous structure of stars and galaxies uh, that's kind of mind-boggling to think that it all just comes from these you know, little tiny chess pieces called atoms and quarks uh, following the rules of this game that they play and assembling uh, to make you know, all of the structure in the universe. I think that's probably the, the grandest uh, coolest part of you know what I do. That's awesome. Could you please briefly describe what what is a stellar engine exactly? Yeah. So what's a stellar engine? That's a great question. So we're just subject to sort of the whims of the cosmic tide, carrying us whichever way uh, gravity is going to take us. 
the idea of a stellar engine is to control that motion and deliberately steer a solar system uh, or a star or a star with its planetary system somewhere that you want it to go. Um, and this is, of course, an enormous undertaking. You know, stars are very big and very heavy. So these are things that are sort of um, the the kind of technological equivalent of, you know, a very advanced alien civilization that can terraform planets and disassemble planets. When we discuss stellar engines, I feel like a lot of people aren't quite familiar yet as to what they are. Was this the first time a stellar engine has been proposed? No, in fact, uh, the earliest stellar engines go back to the, I guess, 1970s or so. Uh, there was a Soviet physicist by the name of Shkadov who proposed basically building a giant solar sail. And if you're familiar with solar sails as a means of propulsion, kind of photons, light comes in and bounces off of them. And, you know, with enough photons bouncing off of a very large extended metal foil uh, as a mirror, those photons from bouncing off of it will push that mirror forward and give it some propulsion. So the idea was to build a stellar scale, something that's you know the size of the sun, uh, that's a mirror over half the solar system or so, to reflect photons in one direction and use those photons almost as like propulsion from a rocket. So people have proposed different ideas in the past. Uh, people have talked about if you have a Dyson sphere, how could you use a Dyson sphere to generate thrust? Uh, so there are a handful of ideas in the literature already or before May. And you mentioned the Dyson Sphere. Um, what exactly is um, a Dyson Sphere? Yeah, so what's a Dyson Sphere? That's a great question. So uh, that comes from Freeman Dyson. And the idea is that if you are one of these very technologically advanced civilizations, either humans in a few thousand years or aliens somewhere else in the galaxy, uh, your energy needs grow exponentially. Even if you're only growing by a percent a year in your you know, energy and mass needs to, to power and construct your civilization, uh, eventually you will exceed the bounds of what your planet can provide and you have to kind of look up. And stars are very big and they provide a lot of energy. So Freeman Dyson's idea was disassembling a planet to build a shell around a star to collect an enormous amount of solar energy uh, to power a civilization. So a Dyson sphere, you could almost think of is like uh, an egg, an eggshell built around a yolk, which is a star. And as that star sort of radiates energy outward, they capture it and they use it to, to do all sorts of, you know, amazing alien things. Wow. <laughs> we must be missing a majority of the energy that comes from our sun in, in the present day then. The vast, overwhelming majority. Uh, I want to compare uh, two, two numbers for you. So I want you to think of a penny and then I want you to think of about $100 trillion. So $100 trillion, that's approximately all of the wealth on Earth. Uh, the difference between a penny and $100 trillion is similar to the difference between uh, the sort of energy that humans use today uh, as our sort of collective civilization and $100 trillion, the total power output of the sun. It's almost unbelievable the, the factors of, of trillions difference between what humans are using now and what we might have access to if we uh, develop an enormous spacefaring civilization. Okay, guys, there's incredible untapped potential here. 
if anyone out there is interested in utilizing more space-based solar power, ping me a note and let's start something together. You mentioned, um, you proposed the idea about a Dyson Swarm. Could you elaborate? Sure. So that's, that's not exactly my idea, but my idea does rely on it. Um, a Dyson Swarm is a variation of a Dyson Sphere. So the Dyson Sphere, as in like a giant rigid kind of eggshell-like structure that I described, that has a few disadvantages. It can shatter. It has stability issues. People have known about this for about 30, 40 years now. Um, a more viable variation of a Dyson Sphere is what's called a Dyson Swarm. So a Dyson Swarm is, um, it's a set of orbiting maybe solar panels in a way. So uh, instead of thinking about, you know, a giant rigid structure that completely envelops the sun, think of lanes of orbital traffic that form sort of rings uh, of many, many, many trillions of, uh, uh, many, many trillions of solar collectors with many of these rings orbiting together, you can capture a fair percentage of the star's emission. And even if you can get, you know, 1% of the sun's emission, that's still trillions of times the energy that we have today. And what are the three classes of stellar engines? So this is from a handful of papers by um, Richard Cathcart and another author, uh, which basically describe um, what sort of stellar engines could you expect uh, to find in the universe? So uh, they called them A, B, and C. So a class A stellar engine was one of these Shkadov thrusters, a giant sort of mirror that you use to push a star around. So that's what they considered a, a class A. It's a, just a passive solar sail, a metal foil that, that they use to sort of steer the star. Uh, class B was a sort of Dyson sphere variant. So a class B stellar engine uses a Dyson sphere to drive some sort of engine or thrust or propulsion in order to uh, steer the star. And I think they called a, a class C a stellar engine that is both a class A and a class B. So it might have uh, a giant uh, sort of solar sail as a component of it and a Dyson swarm and a thruster. So they sort of used class C as a catch-all for anything that didn't fit neatly into class A or class B or use components of both. And... The passive solar sail, uh, class A, that would be um, operating over the sun's poles perpendicular to the stellar disk? Yeah, so that would probably be the best place to uh, build a class A engine because you don't want to redirect too much sunlight towards the planets and potentially fry them if you've inhabited them. Uh, so... Uh, generally, I think when people have described um, the solar scale and the Shkadov thruster in the past, they've proposed building it over the solar poles or maybe at a slight angle in order to sort of choose the direction you steer it. Um, but you can always build, you know, giant shutters in order to block the sunlight when your planet transits the beam of the sun. So you could put them in an arbitrary orientation, but the safest place to put them is over the sun's poles. I'm very curious to hear what made you want to do this research on, on the stellar engine. So I do a lot of writing with Kurzgesagt, which is a design studio and YouTube channel uh, that tries to communicate. And it turned out that 
while there was a literature on it, people had picked up the problem, written a paper or two, uh, they set it back down again, and there wasn't uh, any results in the literature about uh, what is the fastest stellar engine you can build. Uh, nobody had tried to work that out to the best of my understanding. So I sat down and I just tried to tinker with it. If I were trying to control the motion of the sun, how would I do it uh, in a way to maximize my speed? And uh, that was maybe three or four days of just sitting and tinkering and thinking about it before I came across uh, this you know, old paper on uh, driving jets of material with uh, you know, thermonuclear fusion. But it was just one sentence. It was a throwaway line in another paper. And what would what would be the maximum delta V uh, with these designs of the stellar engine? So the design that I proposed, uh, the maximum delta V was about 900 kilometers per second. And I think that number without any context is kind of worthless. So for comparison, I want you to think of the sun's orbital speed in the galaxy. Uh, that is about 200 kilometers per second. So we're talking something that is significantly faster than the sun's or orbital speed in the galaxy. Uh, the escape velocity for the Milky Way is about 500 to 600 kilometers per second. So we're talking about speeds that are sufficient for even escaping the Milky Way and shooting a star out of the galaxy towards Andromeda. Just hearing your words right now, it's uh, incredibly inspiring. Uh, to Hard to believe that. almost. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> and if anyone is interested in looking more into this, the Munich-based YouTube channel um, Matt mentioned really helps provide greater visualization and transparency on, on what we're discussing. So check out the link in the description. And could you elaborate on the components of this, of this active thruster? Sure. So this thermonuclear jet-driven engine, uh, that's kind of a mouthful. So some people have started calling it the Kaplan thruster after me. I can't name it after myself, but other people have called that. Uh, so if you want a, a less of a mouthful, uh, that's, that's the name that people are now using. Uh, the basic idea is to lift mass off of the sun uh, in really powerful solar winds, uh, collect it in some sort of uh, machine and then compress it so that it undergoes thermonuclear fusion and gets really, really hot and use that hot fusion as an exhaust jet, just like a rocket nozzle, uh, and use that to drive a jet of material out of the sun, which pushes the solar system forward, and then to return some of the mass to the sun so that the engine doesn't just crash into the sun, so that you have sort of these uh, oppositely directed jets. One of them is out of the solar system, which pushes the solar system forward, and another jet is forward in the direction of the sun to sort of transfer this momentum uh, towards the sun. So it's a bit like a tugboat. And in your wonderful publication, you also mentioned there could potentially be multiple active Kaplan thrusters on orbit in, in one or a few planes. Which, which gather fuel simultaneously? Yeah, so this is similar to what I mentioned about a, a Dyson sphere or a Dyson swarm. Stars are just really, really big, and the idea of having one single you know, machine or piece of equipment that's responsible for these kind of 
uh, stellar scale maneuvers and civilizations almost seems naive and that it's much more likely or efficient or accessible to build many such things. Uh, but you might expect um, you know, many hundreds of thousands or even millions of these devices all sort of working together to uh, produce uh, the thrust to, to steer a star. So, so why is this worth our time and, and, and what are the benefits? Personally, I just think it's interesting. And that's why I did it. Uh, I'm not seriously proposing that we put down everything we're doing right now and rush out to build uh, a stellar engine. Uh, but, you know, if humans continue to develop at an exponential pace, which we have for you know, centuries now, uh, there will come a time within a few thousand years where our energy needs will be comparable to the power output of the suns. And so for the civilizations, which may be hundreds of millions of light years away, could they potentially observe our solar system moving? You know, um, other stars in the galaxy would probably be able to see uh, that there's something weird going on with our star. They would be able to see that there's some weird emission. There are things obscuring it, uh, like, for example, a Dyson swarm or a part of a Dyson sphere. And it would have these telltale signs of there being life. Uh, the movement proceeds very slowly on astronomical timescales. Uh, you wouldn't look at it and see it zipping around in the night sky on any given night. But by comparing observations of stars year to year to year, you might notice some sort of anomalous motion to the star. So that's a way that we could potentially identify other civilizations in our galaxy. And likewise, that they might spot us in a few thousand years if we ever build something so insane. <laughs> is the idea that if we're not alone in the universe, and if there are other alien civilizations that are out there, even in our galaxy, uh, we should be asking the question, well, if we were them and we were a few thousand years more advanced than we are right now, what might we have built and what might we be doing with it. And this gives us an observational signature to look for, to try and identify where there might be other life in the galaxy, is to look for these so-called techno-signatures. You also mentioned about the benefit of avoiding um, a supernova that's nearby our solar system. Um, yeah, that's one of the main motivations I gave in my paper for why someone might try to build something like this. Uh, the universe and our galaxy are full of things that go bump in the night. There are supernova and gamma ray bursts and black holes and all sorts of awful things which can have really negative effects on inhabited planets uh, or on inhabited solar systems. Uh, this might be a reason that the universe seems so devoid of life is that uh, there are explosions going off and sterilizing huge chunks of it all the time, like someone dropping bleach in a petri dish. So the ability to... Uh, of course, know which stars are going to explode millions of years ahead of time by having very good astronomy uh, can be sort of supplemented by the ability to then dodge those uh, soon-to-be exploding stars with a stellar engine. So that's a, a motivation for uh, why we should think about doing this. Uh, and it's not insane. We actually have fossil evidence on Earth that uh, the Earth has been struck by a handful of supernova. You know, this can cause wildfires as dust from the supernova interacts with the atmosphere and causes lightning. Uh, it can have severe climatic effects just on the Earth of a supernova washing over the solar system, even if it's from hundreds of light years away. So supernova have an amazingly large sort of danger zone that you don't want to be near when they go off. Um, 
what was the time frame of this um, of this observed supernova? Um, so there were a handful of supernova within the past maybe 10 million years. I think there's evidence of two or three uh, supernova that have rained down a specific isotope of iron. We find this from deep ocean cores. Uh, in the rock, there are these layers of iron that sort of were deposited. And there's mounting evidence to support this theory that this supernova is correlated to a dramatic shift in Earth's climate change around 2.6 million years ago. It's thought that supernovas caused these wildfires, specifically in Africa, which converted large amounts of uh, forest into, uh, into sort of grasslands and plains, which put an evolutionary pressure on apes to stand upright. So it's actually thought that, that uh, by some people at least, it's been proposed that supernova lightning storms uh, played a direct role in the evolution of humans. My mind is blown at the moment. <laughs> um, what are some of the challenging design concerns of, of the Kaplan thruster and, and, and a stellar engine? Oh, can I just say everything? I think I'll just say everything and uh, leave it at that. And you also mentioned the disruption of um, solar wind as, as a challenge. Uh, how do you believe we could begin researching and, and, and finding the answers to how a stellar engine would, would influence the, the solar wind? Ah, that's a great question, which is a little bit outside my area because I am not a heliosphere magnetic plasma uh, scientist. But uh, <laughs> this, is, this is absolutely the kind of thing that would be cool if anyone listening to this episode happens to be you know, a solar wind scientist. So this disrupts the solar wind, of course. The solar wind is normally this sort of smooth spiral, like a sprinkler that trickles mass into the solar system. It would have weird effects on the magnetic fields of the solar system and their interactions with the planetary magnetic fields. Uh, and that might be really dangerous. Uh, maybe there's a solution or maybe not. But uh, it's the kind of thing that would require very detailed simulations. Uh, the same thing is true for planetary orbits. If you are perturbing the motion of the sun by accelerating it with uh, an engine, you might also be perturbing the orbits of the planets. And the long-term orbital stability of the planets um, might be something that... So those are examples of the sort of problems that we can still study today with computer simulations, even if we're not planning on building something like this tomorrow. And what is the extent that on-orbit manufacturing and assembly could have on this project? That's a really great question because that's actually one of the, the core ideas behind any sort of advanced civilization is... Uh, how do you disassemble a planet? Ultimately, you need uh, mass comparable to at least a good percentage of the mass of a planet. Um, this is the kind of technology where you're strip mining, for example, Mercury. It's the closest planet to the sun in order to manufacture all of these things and launch them. So uh, Mercury is great because it doesn't have an atmosphere. So space launch is basically free. You don't need uh, an enormous amount of fuel like you do on Earth. You can just put things on a railgun and use an electromagnet to launch things into orbit. Um, if you're launching your Dyson Sphere that way, or your Dyson Swarm perhaps, uh, you would pack little foils like origami and then you would launch them into space where they could open up and then form these giant uh, sort of solar. Uh, I would imagine you would take huge, huge amounts of metal and launch them into space and then do all of the construction in orbit. It's not something that you build on the ground and launch like you know rockets and satellites today. We're probably talking about machines that are hundreds of kilometers in scale. Uh, it's just not something that you build on the ground and launch. It's almost certainly all done in orbit.
you know, some of this, some of the stuff we're talking about here sounds crazy. <laughs> it's, um... Yeah, and and I think that's a really great point. Um, I don't personally um, believe, or or I'm not personally suggesting that that we do this right now. But I'm asking yes, a question yes. of what's possible. You know, that's yes. the really interesting question here. Is just is this even possible? I love to. I love to hear that you're asking those questions. Um, and we'll be back right after this break. And we're back. <laughs> okay, Matt. And I was wondering why did a star get arrested? Why did a star get what? Arrested. Oh, this is a joke. You're making a joke. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, why did the star get arrested? I don't know, Cole. Why? Because it was a shooting star. Oh, that's bad. I teach astronomy tomorrow, so I will be sure to tell that to my students. <laughs> Please do. So if this technology was operational and, um, say, life in our solar system is experiencing um, tremendous amounts of energy surpluses, um, would it be beneficial to have other kind of solar energy stations elsewhere in our solar system? Yes. Uh, without even imagining uh, a thruster for a minute, just think about what you can do with a Dyson sphere or Dyson swarm. Uh, I mentioned that they might not be like conventional solar panels, but they might be like concentrated solar power where you use mirrors to focus and redirect energy. If you have a system like that built near the sun, you can beam however much energy you want directly, just as sort of electromagnetic waves, just as light, anywhere you want it in the solar system. You could imagine uh, delivering all of this energy to Jupiter, and you could strip mass from Jupiter for all sorts of construction projects. You could send uh, energy to Uranus and Neptune just by using these enormous mirrors, and you could make moons far, far out in the solar system habitable just because you have made the amount of sunlight that's reaching them a hundred times greater. So they cease to be these frigid icy balls of death and they become nice and warm and wet like the earth. So the ability to redirect energy almost arbitrarily in the solar system with uh, a Dyson sphere uh, makes basically your wildest dreams of, you know, reconstructing and disassembling planets come true. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but like I said, exponential growth can go really, really quickly. Uh, but if you have a stellar engine and a Dyson sphere and you can control the motion of your star, it can be very easy to sort of navigate toward other stars that you see have viable and interesting looking planetary systems. And you can basically do a drive-by um, colonization. And Wow. And one of the um, profound benefits you mentioned in your research along the lines of outgrowing star systems um, was how a stellar engine in, in Dyson sphere um, could extend the life of our sun by a few billion years? Yeah, the thruster that I sort of designed or proposed uses the mass of the sun as fuel. And uh, higher mass stars, while they do have more fuel, they actually burn it faster. So higher mass stars burn out faster than low mass stars. Low mass stars, you know, a few tens of percent the mass of our sun can live for hundreds of billions or trillions of years, while stars that are, you know, 10 times or 20 times the mass of our sun burn out within millions of years. Um, could this 
potentially influence the amount of UV radiation and sunlight we receive here on Earth? Yeah, absolutely. So when the sun or any star sort of loses mass, uh, it will become a redder, uh, dimmer star. Its surface temperature will drop. So, uh, and this could have very you know serious you know consequences for life on Earth. If you have a Dyson sphere, for example, uh, you have access to many mirrors, and you can provide as much or as little energy to a planet as you want by you know focusing more light with the mirrors or adding shutters. You could add filters in order to filter out some of the red light so that you can make up for the deficit in UV. So you can change the sort of uh, spectra of energy delivered to any planet in your solar system. Wow. And then in Dyson's original work, um, he mentioned that these megastructures could could enhance the infrared emission. Um, yes. Of the star as well. So that's that's an example of one of these spectral changes that we can look for to find aliens is that uh, we would have a telltale sign of a Dyson sphere is that a star is releasing too much of its power in infrared relative to visible light. Wow. On the topic of interstellar travel, if so if we were to jump into the future and imagine uh, a stellar engine is blasting us up vertically upwards this this light would be beaming off from our sun in uh, nearly 360 degrees backwards in time um in 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 every direction and you know if if, if say dozens or or hundreds of years go by and and there's no contact from another technologically advanced civilization could we infer that there's likely little to no technologically advanced civilizations nearby uh, yes and no. On the one hand, if they don't reach out to us, uh, all that tells us is that we haven't found them, even if they've found us. Uh, there is a, a very simple solution to the sort of absence of observed life and the absence of detected radio signals from other civilizations, which is that, uh, pardon my French, everyone is scared shitless of each other. Uh, like I mentioned, humans might be interested in colonizing other systems and turning them into our systems. And if there is indigenous life, we might not have the same regard for them uh, as we have for ourselves if we are hungry and greedy and want to expand. So you might not want to be broadcasting that you have a wet, habitable, viable planets with oxygenated atmospheres uh, available to you. I was wondering how effective could this be towards mapping our, our galaxy and universe? That's a great question. So. It depends on maybe where you go with it. Um, if you try to leave the galaxy, which you can, uh, you might get a better view of, of course, the Milky Way and the rest of the universe, because if you're not embedded in the Milky Way, you don't have a lot of material that's sort of blocking your view, especially in the direction of the galactic core. Um, being able to um, you know, travel around the Milky Way almost arbitrarily would let you see the other side of the galactic core, which is obscured from us. Of course, these are multi-million year goals for, for a sort of advanced civilization. And another question for you is, with, with current space exploration technology, could this be one of the most effective methods to um, potentially make contact with advanced celestial species? Um, you know, yes and no. Um, you know, that is, that's actually a very good ethical question that I think really goes beyond the scope of anything I could work on and really involves kind of every human on the planet. Is this something that we would want to do is risk our civilization trying to make friends out there? 
I think it represents an important step in the advancement of a civilization. Um, you kind of just put yourselves out there in the galaxy and universe. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there's an interesting question that comes from this, which is uh, a lot of similar sort of research and ideas about, you know, expanding a civilization and colonizing other stars and spreading through the universe describe it as being almost easy from physics alone. It's almost trivial to send out billions of probes to sort of take over the universe and sort of colonize entire galaxies. But the fact is, is that we haven't seen that because we have yet to see a galaxy that has been totally taken over and sort of rebuilt to suit the needs of a civilization, as far as we can tell. Mm -hmm. We have yet to see anything like this in our galaxy. So it's this very interesting question of, you know, how possible is this? Do civilizations exist all over the place like us, but they are terrified to build these, to advertise their presence? Um, you know, it would, of course, be a very grand uh, entrance on the cosmic stage to build a Dyson sphere and light up a stellar engine that can be seen from across the galaxy. And I, I recently started watching the Expanse series. Um, I haven't seen it. Is it good? Yes, I'm. I love it. Excellent. Maybe I'll check it out. Are they sponsoring this conversation we're having? Because if so, I'm definitely checking it out. <laughs> no, they're not. But but hopefully one day, maybe. <laughs> um, so I was wondering, are are there any plans to incorporate a stellar engine into any sci-fi movies or or series? Well, I have yet to um, you know get an email from any uh, writers or studios about this. But uh, you know, if any of you who happen to be listening to this at home right now uh, are interested, uh, send me an email and uh, we'll talk. And where can our listeners find you and get in touch? Yeah, so I'm a professor at Illinois State University. My email is just on the Illinois State University website. So just search for Matt Kaplan. Uh, that's Kaplan with a C. One last question. How, how does it feel to have really re-energized this, this, this research topic in, in science space for millions of humans on Earth? It's really fun. Um, I have this sort of grand dream that uh, maybe not in my lifetime, but maybe soon, uh, our sort of collective understanding of our place in the universe will, will shift to be uh, more cosmic in nature. And we'll have a sense that uh, we have one planet and it's up to us to take care of it. And uh, we're all in this together. And uh, this is probably the most interesting and noble thing we can do as a species is to sort of look up and expand. And I'm hoping if I can even sort of be a drop in the bucket motivating members of the public to, to think this way, instead of thinking in terms of petty nation states and our petty conflicts today, uh, then it will have made a difference. I think it's incredibly motivating and, and, and please keep up your, your excellent research and, and work. Thanks Cole. And keep up the good work with your podcast. Hey, if you left this conversation with new perspectives, please leave a review on iTunes or go leave a comment about this episode on LinkedIn. Thanks so much for listening and have an awesome day.